KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, revelations about the January 6th insurrection include striking new information about the Trump kids that day, who did what, and also who didn't do anything. Amy Willens will report. It's another episode of The Children's Hour. Also, we'll have a report from Kwajalein, one of the Marshall Islands in the Pacific that's a major U.S. military base. Tom Lutz stopped there recently. He says it's completely paved over, and the only greenery is the golf course. The runway is one foot above sea level. The island will be underwater by about 2035. Tom also describes life in some other places he's visited. His new book is The Kindness of Strangers. But first how Donald Trump ripped off America and enriched his family. That's the subject of a new book by David K. Johnston. It's called The Big Cheat. He won a Pulitzer Prize while working for the New York Times. He's written two earlier books about Donald Trump that were bestsellers. We talked about him here. And he's the co-founder of DC Report, a nonprofit news organization online at dcreport.org. He also teaches at the Syracuse University Law School. David K. Johnston, welcome back. Well, thank you, John, for having me again. After Trump took the oath of office, January 20th, 2017, how long did it take him to start using the presidency to make money for himself? Less than one hour. On the the way in the motorcade from the Capitol to the White House with a very sparse audience, he stopped the car and the whole family got out. You may remember Melania and her gorgeous ice blue dress, and they took a two-minute turn on the sidewalk. But what none of the TV networks told their audiences was that it was in front of the Trump Washington Hotel, the old post office. But I assure you that every lobbyist, every foreign envoy, anyone who needed favors from the administration, they got the message. If you want a favor from this administration, you will pay up front And the best way to pay tribute is to go to his hotel. Of course, we all know about Mar-a-Lago, the Trump Hotel in Palm Beach. We know that Trump had different ways of making money there. Which were the big ones? Well, the big money makers were the Doral, his country club in Miami near the airport, where a number of people moved their conventions, including the uh, annual conference of the predatory lenders, you know, the the, uh, payday and the car title lenders. Mar-a-Lago doesn't have a golf course, but there's two of them nearby. And uh, one of the early chapters in the book is called uh, Charity Doghouse. Donald uses dogs as a way to denigrate people, you know, a lying dog, a worthless dog, a whatever dog, particularly women he doesn't like. And uh, while he was in the White House, uh, he ripped off a uh, dog rescue charity for about $2 million dollars that instead of going to rescue dogs, went to help Donald Trump pursue his life. And, and he was absolutely determined, John, to get every single penny from the taxpayers he could. He did a photo op at Mar-a-Lago with Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan. And there were two water glasses on the table. They were props. $3.15 per glass was paid by the taxpayers. I have the invoice. Ordinary people could become members of the Mar-a-Lago Club, and you could then eat dinner maybe while Trump was eating dinner. It cost, I think, 
the price went up, of course. I think it was a $200,000 fee to join Mar-a-Lago. If you did that, if you paid $200,000 and ate dinner in the dining room, what did that get you? Would you get FaceTime with the president? Well, before he was president, it only cost 100000 to join. And then as soon as he won the Electoral College, he doubled it to 200000 Uh Yes, many people went there expecting they would run into Donald, and many of them did. Uh, Donald famously discussed national security matters openly in front of people he had no idea who they were. Uh, and there were lots of very sketchy characters with foreign connections who joined presumably so that they could pick up bits of intelligence there. And after Trump himself, who did you find made the most money off the Trump presidency? Oh, without a doubt, uh, Jared and Ivanka. Uh, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and his family, got 18 sweetheart federally guaranteed loans, interest only for 10 years on apartments they own. These are not loans that you and I, even if we were big, successful real estate developers, could have gotten on the terms they got. They made, according to their disclosure statements, a minimum of $174 million during the White House years, and they could have made more than $640 million. That's because the disclosure forms have uh, ranges, not actual amounts of money. Uh, I think it's highly likely that uh, they were raking money in more than $640 million in four years, better than that is $5 million a month. Jared uh, had many jobs in the administration. The toughest one was probably bringing peace to the Mideast. Uh, how, how did he do with that one? Uh, not at all. But what he did do was damage our interests with Qatar. Qatar is where America has its most important Middle East base. Uh, the uh, Central Command's operational headquarters is there. And Jared Kushner went to the Qataris and said, hey, I'd like you to loan me $800 million on sweetheart terms. And the Qataris took a look at it and said, you know, we may be rich, but we're not stupid. <laughs> and they turned him away. Right after that, Donald Trump began attacking Qatar. He said, they're financing terrorists. And he took up the cause of the Emiratis and the Saudis. Well, the Saudis finance 60 terrorist organizations, the Qataris two, and at a much lower level. What happened here was that the Saudis, who are very eager to suppress the Qataris, uh, in Saudi Arabia, you know, they beheaded a few years ago 39 men for praying for a better government. Wow. They murdered Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist, and have committed many other atrocities. They don't do that in Qatar. They don't behead people in Qatar. People have a lot more liberties in Qatar. It's, it's not a democracy by any means, but it's a much better example of a country. But Donald aligned himself with the worst people. And the reason is he, A, doesn't know anything about the Middle East. He doesn't know a Sunni from a Shia. If you asked him about Wahhabism, he would go, what? <laughs> uh, and his son-in-law was in there lining his pockets. And right after he got out of the White House, what did Jared do? He started setting up a business, investing money for Saudis and Emiratis. So this is Jared. We also need to talk about Ivanka. Ivanka said her specialty uh, during the Trump administration was providing a role model for women who work. 
Uh, what kind of tips could working women have learned from Ivanka once her father was president and she was one of his top advisors? Uh, I don't think any, to be very blunt about it. There was a, a meeting of finance ministers and world leaders, and Ivanka came along uninvited. And there was a gathering with a Christian Lagarde, the French head of the uh, European Central Bank, and several other women who were prominent in finance. And if you watch a, the video on YouTube, you can see these other very accomplished women make it clear with their body language, you don't belong here, Ivanka, get out of here. <laughs> she did get a number of very potentially valuable intellectual property rights from the Chinese government. Now, John, if you or I or anyone listening here wanted to go get a patent, a trademark, a service mark from Beijing, we would have to hire the right lawyers in the Communist Party, spend a lot of money, and expect months and years of delays. Ivanka got hers presto just before President Xi went to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Donald Trump. And curiously, one of the intellectual property rights she got was for voting machines. Now, why you would want voting machine property rights in a country that's a communist dictatorship is beyond me, but... But haven't you overlooked the fact that Ivanka created 6 million jobs? Or, or was it 14? Maybe it was 14 million. I'm a little confused million. on the... Yeah, that's one of the stories in the book that, that Donald at one point credited Ivanka with creating 15 million jobs when it was a tiny fraction of that was the total jobs created in the country. That goes to something I said about Donald, who I've covered and known for 33 years. Mm. He creates his own reality. He just makes it up. And in Donald's mind, if he says something, that's the truth, and you better believe it. And if you don't, well, there's something wrong with you. And he literally kept crediting Ivanka with every job in America and pushing up the numbers. And he has said, you know, she should be president in the future. God save us. Uh, moving right along here, Ivanka and Jared seem to have done a lot better than Don Jr. And, and Eric, hasn't Trump been unfair to his other kids? Well, Don Jr. and Eric are very, very well paid by their father compared to the market. I mean, all three of the Trump kids who distanced themselves from their father after he divorced their mother and denounced him, and particularly in the case of Ivanka, came back to daddy right after they got out of college because nobody in the market would be interested in them and certainly not the kind of money daddy put in their pocket. And he turned them all into grifters. One of the stories in the book is about the charity to build the wall with Mexico with charity money. Now, we're talking about saying it would cost if you could physically do it, many tens of billions of dollars. And the guy who started this, a disabled vet named Brian Colfage, said, no money will be spent by me. I won't get a penny out of this. Well, pretty soon, Don Jr. and his girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, are out helping raise money for this thing. Steve Bannon, Trump's former campaign manager, gets into this. And Bannon steals a million dollars from the charity. He gets pardoned by Donald Trump. Colfage buys a yacht and jewelry and $350,000 cash and a lot of other stuff for himself. He and two of his Confederates are still facing trial because Donald wasn't their friend uh, and they didn't therefore get pardoned. But this is the kind of grifter family that Trumps are. They don't believe there's any difference between your money and mine, except they don't have your money yet. Of course, the worst thing Trump has done is not enrich himself and his family. The worst thing is his attack on democracy, on, on voting in America. But there is a connection. 
between the two. After Trump lost the election of November 2020, he launched a campaign to reverse the results. He called it Stop the Steal, and he asked supporters to contribute to the legal expenses of going to court. So he tried to make money off losing the election, which I think may be a first in American politics. How successful was he at that effort? How much did he raise? How much did he spend on Stop the Steal? Well, he's raised well over $250 million. I suspect when we get the reports at the end of uh, 2021, it will be close to a half a billion. He spent only $9 million on lawyers. And of course, they were famously unsuccessful because they had no evidence. They just had wild, crazy conspiracy theories, uh, some of which have led to uh, acts of violence against people who were just people doing their government jobs, ordinary folks. And Donald is free now to spend that money on himself and his lifestyle. He, he has, in my view, become America's beggar in chief. And he's, he's quite good at it in many ways. I get, um, oh, three to eight emails a day from uh, pitches to give money to Trump. My favorites are the ones from Don Jr. David, last night I spoke with my father. You were the only person in America who supports us who didn't respond to my latest request for help. <laughs> my father is very upset. and He asked me to call you as one of our most generous supporters. <laughs> you know, I mean... People believe this garbage? Yeah, because they are what Trump calls the people he loves, the poorly educated. Let's go back to before Trump was president. You say you've covered him for many decades. Of course, he ran in the primaries in 2015 and 2016 as the candidate who was a genius at business. There are some respects in which he was very good, in a way, at dealing with inve investors and vendors and employees and, and banks that loaned him money, students that enrolled at his university. Tell us about Trump as a businessman before he became president, something you know a lot about. Yeah, I've known Donald since 1988, so a long, long time. Uh, Donald's uh, business is uh, stealing. He hires vendors to do work for him, and then he'll he'll refuse to pay them. Uh, he'll take your work and say, this is crap, and then he'll use it. And if you say, well, you got to pay me, he'll say, sue me. Uh, Donald has cheated investors. He's refused to pay his own workers. Uh, Trump University, of course, was a scam from day one in which uh, they said Donald would personally select the faculty when under oath he didn't have any idea who they were, and they turned out to be fry cooks and bottle washers and people with no business experience. Uh, and of course, ultimately, he had to repay almost all of that money. Well, Trump may have uh, defrauded his investors and stiffed his vendors and uh, employees, but the feds did put him on trial for income tax fraud. I think a lot of people don't know about this. Tell us about it. Well, it was actually not the feds. It was the city of New York and the state of New York. And these were uh, income tax fraud civil trials. In, uh, his 19, in 1984 was Donald's biggest year by far up to that point. He opened his first casino in Atlantic City. And Trump Tower, the units went on sale just before the beginning of that year. So he had this enormous income that year, just nothing like he'd ever had before. And he filed an income tax return that had what's called a Schedule C. That's what I file as an author and freelancer. It's a sole proprietorship. He showed no revenue. 
He took over $600,000 in deductions, a different amount, by the way, on each return, which is very bizarre. He was audited, and the state and the city of New York said, you owe money. Uh, he wouldn't pay. There was a trial. In one of the trials, his longtime tax lawyer and accountant, Jack Mitnick, was put under oath by the judge, and he was asked, is that your signature on the tax return? And Mitnick looked at the document and said, your honor, that's my signature, but I did not prepare that tax return. The tax return was actually a photocopy, not an original. You know, you have to sign with an ink pen, your tax return. You can't sign with a pencil, you got to sign with an ink pen. This was a photocopy, and it was what the was officially filed. Well, uh, somebody, presumably Donald, changed the tax return, and with a photocopy machine, put Jack Mitnick's signature on it. And the only reason the judge didn't go after him uh, worse was nobody could find the original, because it wasn't ever filed, presumably, and the judge was cautious about this. But we have absolute proof that Donald Trump is a tax cheat, and then along comes the New York Times after I got one year of Donald's tax return, and, and my former newspaper very graciously acknowledged my role in getting them to dig into Donald's taxes. And they established, after getting 18 bankers' boxes of tax records from Mary Trump, uh, the former president's niece, that he was a swindler in taxes. The whole family, including his sister, a federal judge, were all serial, calculated, deliberate, knowing tax cheats. This is a crime family. Donald Trump is the third generation head of a four-generation crime family that started in the 1880s and is still engaged today in swindling. They don't break legs. They just rob you blind with contracts and refusals to pay. Four months after Trump left office, a state grand jury in Manhattan indicted the Trump Organization for Criminal Tax Fraud Conspiracy, a felony. Tell us about that indictment and where we stand on it right now. Well, Donald Trump's lawyers and spokespeople do not dispute the facts in this case, which is very important. What they say is everybody does it, and it's small potatoes. Uh, Alan Weiselberg, who is the money man at the Trump Organization, the guy who knows where every dollar is and was, received $1.7 million in fringe benefits, like a lease, two leased Mercedes-Benzes, an apartment in New York, although he declared he was not living in New York, but out in Long Island, and uh, various other benefits on which he paid no taxes. Now, is that small potatoes? Uh, at the median income for workers in the United States in 2020, we just got the data, uh, you would have to work for almost 60 years to get $1.7 million. More than 50 years is probably the easier way to put it. So I don't know, is a lifetime's income, small potatoes and tax fraud? Uh, Alan Weiselberg was indicted in the hope that he would flip on Donald. There were lots of news reports by reporters that said he could get 15 years in prison. What none of them read was the statute. There's no mandatory prison for any of the charges against him. And a man in his 70s with no prior criminal convictions, even if convicted fully, he's going to get probation or house arrest. So uh, Weiselberg thumbed his nose. But the indictment of the Trump Organization, that is 100% owned by Donald Trump. That's his alter ego. So uh, there's no question that the Trump Organization was actively involved with many people in tax fraud. 
I don't expect Donald Trump to be indicted personally for tax fraud. And let me explain why, John. If he were tried on a tax charge, his lawyers would say, well, he, he was just puffing. He was just uh, marketing himself, and, and uh, he really doesn't know anything about taxes. So now what? It seems like Trump is going to be the candidate in 2024, and it seems like a lot of people are ready to vote for him. I don't think Donald Trump will be the candidate in 2024 because he's going to be indicted before then, perhaps more than once, and that's going to change the dynamic. When he is indicted by the Manhattan grand jury, I expect it will be for a New York State racketeering charge, Article 460, if you want to look it up, of the New York Penal Code. He's under investigation by Mimi Rocha, the former federal, longtime former federal prosecutor who's now the district attorney in Westchester County over property tax fraud. He claims his Westchester golf course is worth a million and a half dollars for tax purposes, but on his presidential forms, he said more than a hundred, more than 50 million. And he said to people, it's worth a hundred million. Well, you know, you can go to your assessor and say, wait a minute, my house is worth 10% less than you say. But if you, your disparity is one and a half million to a hundred million, I'm sorry, that, that doesn't work. He's under a criminal investigation by the state attorney general in New York, Letitia James, in two different matters by the district attorney, I'm sorry, the attorney general in Washington, D.C., and the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, for, for um, election fraud. That doesn't mean he isn't working, and many people around him aren't working, to end your liberties and to turn us into a dictatorship. They are working very hard to do this. So pay attention to would-be usurpers, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and a whole slew of other people who want to be our dictator and that millions and millions of Americans no longer care about democracy and they say so quite openly, they're eager to embrace a dictator. David K. Johnson, his new book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. David, thanks for your many years of work on this topic and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has been discovering and revealing many crucial facts about who did what that day, including Trump family members. That means it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Boy, were those kids busy on January 6th. For that, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem bureau chief for The New Yorker, and also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. And she teaches in the literary journalism program at the University of California, Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, January 6th started with Trump's speech outside the White House at the Ellipse. That's the speech that concluded with him calling on the crowd to march on the Capitol to get him declared winner of the election. He said he'd go with them, but of course he didn't. Where were the Trump kids at that point? They were backstage in the tent for the rally. Ivanka did not come out on stage. 
she had been asked often to give a speech by the people who were organizing the rally, but she didn't want to, apparently. According to Carol Leoning and Phil Rucker, who wrote I Alone Can Fix It, which was excerpted in the Washington Post, she told aides that she decided to attend only because she hoped that she could calm the president and keep the event on an even keel. <laughs> well, we saw how that worked. Anyway, some of those, according to Leoning and Rucker, some of those backstage around the president encouraged his fantasy of Mike Pence stepping in to overturn the election. Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is the girlfriend of Don Trump Jr., she was there and she referred to the growing crowd on the ellipse, telling, uh, telling Trump they're just reflecting the will of the people. This is the will of the people. That's how Guilfoyle talks generally. I think she talks like that even when she's like out to dinner. Ivanka did not agree with this, and she was upset about what Rudy Giuliani and the others around her dad had been advising him. And at one point that morning, she said, this is not right. It's not right. And then Trump's supporters invaded the Capitol, and we learned last week about Don Jr.'s actions during the insurrection. And this was sort of a shocker. What did Don Jr. do? President Trump's eldest son, pleaded with the White House chief of staff, that's Mark Meadows, to get his father to do more to end the violence, which is, you know, what, what um, has been quoted, to get his father to do more to end the violence is interesting because his father hadn't been really doing anything. Don Jr. Jr. texted Meadows saying he's got to condemn this ASAP. What's our source here? Actually, Mark Meadows himself, not some spy, and Meadows released these texts to the January 6th Select Committee investigating the former president's effort to overturn the election. And then Liz Cheney, one of the committee members, read it aloud on live TV, along with similar texts Meadows received from Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram at the time. And then uh, after that news came out, Stephen Colbert said about Don Jr.'s text message to Mark Meadows that it reveals two things about Don Jr. One, that he knew his dad was responsible, and two, he does not have his father's cell phone number. It's funny, but he is onto something here. Could it really be that Don Jr. communicates with his father through the chief of staff? There's so many things to speculate about with that little piece of information. Like, perhaps, like a millennial, President Trump doesn't pick up his phone. He never looks at his phone. He ghosts everybody. That's entirely possible, given his personality, too. He doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't have a personal cell phone. That's possible. Or he doesn't want to hear from Don Jr., so he doesn't look at anything that comes in from Don Jr. Don knows that Mark Meadows is a better person to, to use. Okay, so that's... Don Jr., the number one son. What about Ivanka? She's the one of the children that's closest to the president. He always says she's his favorite. Did she send a text message to uh, Mark Meadows asking him to do something? Where was she during the insurrection? Uh, Leoning and Rucker say about Ivanka that as she had gone back to the White House from the ellipse um, after the rioting began. And as soon as she saw what was happening um, the, and that they were inside the Capitol, she turned to her aides and said, I'm going down to my dad. This has to stop. She spent several hours walking back and forth to the Oval Office, trying to persuade the president to be stronger in telling his supporters he stood with law enforcement and in ordering them to disperse. But 
Leoning and Rucker go on. Just when Ivanka thought she had made headway and returned upstairs, Meadows would call her to say that the president still needed more persuading. <laughs> Meadows kept saying, I need you to come back down here. We've got to get this under control. He would clear the room of other aides for the favorite daughter and say, I only want Ivanka, myself, and the president in here. And then this kept on going on all through the afternoon. As another presidential advisor said, Ivanka was described to me like a stable pony. When the racehorse gets too agitated, you bring the stable pony in to calm him down. <laughs> but apparently, this stable pony was not having much of an effect. And we also know that Lindsey Graham also wanted to get through to the president. And his idea was not to text Mark Meadows, but to call Ivanka. How did that work out? So he called up the first daughter on her cell phone numerous times until she finally picked up. You need to tell those people to leave, Graham said. We're working on it, she replied. Apparently, she still hadn't gotten any farther. And what about Jared? Trump had given him lots of jobs, no jobs relating to getting him declared president. He was supposed to be making peace in the Middle East at this time. What do we know about Jared on that day? So he had been flying back to Washington, D.C. from Saudi Arabia and his good friends there uh, when a mob of when the mob uh, stormed the Capitol. Um, he avoided Trump because he was worried they'd get into a fight. He didn't like to fight with his father in law. And he told a, a GOP lawmaker that he stayed away from the White House after the riot, saying, well, just get in a fight if I go over there. So when he landed at Joint Base Andrews, he was told it would be dangerous for him to go to the White House. And he returned home when Ivanka issued and later deleted a tweet on January 6th, calling on American patriots to stop the violence immediately. Kushner remained silent. And what's our source for this story? An incredible amount of information out there. This is Jonathan Carl's new book, The Betrayal, The Final Act of the Trump Show. I just want to say one thing. What's interesting about the Kushner reaction yeah. is that Kushner clearly believes that even though he's married to the daughter, he doesn't have Ivanka standing with Trump. But like any fight Ivanka gets into with Trump, basically they're going to get over it. But when Kushner gets in a fight, he's afraid he'll be excluded from the circle of power forever. So, of course, courageously, he doesn't do anything. Finally, there's little Eric, the youngest of these kids. What was he doing on January 6th? We don't know much. Maybe he's not in contact that much with the most important people, was not in contact that much with the most important people around President Trump. But a few days before the uh, supporters of President Trump stormed the, the Capitol building, one of the top organizers for the rally that preceded the riot, the one at the Ellipse, reportedly issued an unusual request to some underlings. According to Rolling Stone magazine, the January 6th planners were ordered to use cash to purchase burner phones that were used to communicate directly with the Trump family and White House officials. According to this report, the phones were used to talk to figures, including Donald Trump's son, Eric, his wife, Laura Trump, and Mark Meadows. Now, this got into the news because Eric threatened a lawsuit about one version of this story that appeared in the media. Well, it was the Palmer Report, which is a website, and he threatened them he threatened to sue them because they got the story a little bit backwards. In its tweet, the Palmer Report, reading the Rolling Stone story wrong, said that Eric and Lara reportedly used the burner phones to communicate with the organizers of the attack on the Capitol. 
but um, the Rolling Stone article said that the organizers used the burner phones to communicate with Eric. But of course, as usual, walking into the fire, Eric, in his inimitable way, with his suit for defamation of character, discovered that uh, he had made the news bigger than it would have been otherwise. So Eric Trump doesn't seem to have had much of anything at all to do, uh, or at least so far, nothing has really been revealed that Eric did anything one way or the other on January 6th. Maybe when people in the Trump organization, and I don't mean the business organization, maybe when they see Eric's texts, they just delete them and they go nowhere because he's so unimportant. Or maybe he just didn't care what was happening at the Capitol, or maybe he was part of it. One other thing, Melania. We haven't mentioned Melania here. Where was she on January 6th? Was she at her husband's side? No, she was not. If you saw some of the video that was coming out of backstage, you could see she wasn't there and that the major female figure was Kimberly Guilfoyle. Leonig and Rucker say that Melania chose not to attend the Save America rally, which is what it was called, telling aides that she was not sure it was a good idea for her to participate. She was busy that morning overseeing a scheduled photo of rugs and other decor in the White House residence. <laughs> First things it's like, first. It's like Jackie Kennedy giving the, uh, you know, on that, the Von Meter record, giving the tour of the White House while the Cuban <laughs> Missile Crisis is going on. Uh, and then there's one other little story here, but it's also kind of revealing. Jared has a brother, Josh Kushner. He's called the good Kushner because he's a liberal. They contribute to Democrats. He's married, to, like all Kushners, to a former supermodel. Carly Kloss, who's also a Democratic Party activist. Carly herself was in the news. So Carly criticized Trump supporters after the attack happened. And she tweeted about how she had tried to have political conversations with Jared and Ivanka. This is what her tweet said. Accepting the results of a legitimate Democratic election is patriotic. Refusing to do so and inciting violence is anti-American. The Post immediately drew a rebuke from one of her followers on social media who wrote, tell your sister-in-law and brother-in-law, to which Carly responded, I've tried. The tweet was later deleted. And what's our source for this story? Our source for this story is the Daily Mail. So where, now that we know all of this, where do we stand? Is Ivanka restored to her place as the voice of sanity and reason in the Trump family? Is Don Jr. going to be elevated as a reasonable fellow? You could, you could look at it and say that Ivanka was trying to save the country, but actually she was just trying to put Trump back in a box where he wouldn't look like a lunatic, you know, trying to stop him from destroying himself as she saw it in the moment. Now, whether uh, whether he destroyed himself or not by doing what he did or by not not trying to stop what was going on, that's a that's a question that remains to be answered. He doesn't seem destroyed in any way. And and the situation with Ivanka is, will she still be there at his side as his future spins out? Is, is she still considered a, a real Trump person or is she outside the extremism? of Trumpism from having argued against this attack on the Capitol. This has been another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John.
It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Tom Lutz. He travels around the world to places none of us have been, and he writes about the people he meets there. The third book in this series has just been published. It's called The Kindness of Strangers. Tom Lutz is founding editor of the LA Review of Books, now celebrating its 10th anniversary. He's also distinguished professor and chair of creative writing at UC Riverside. He's written many books. I think my favorite is his wonderful novel, Born Slippy. Tom Lutz, welcome back. Oh, thanks, John. Very glad to be here. Where are you today? Uh, I am Today I'm in Nizwa, a, a little town in the mountains of Oman. A little town in the mountains of Oman. Oman, I have my map here of the Arabian Peninsula so I can keep track of you. Oman is kind of around the corner of the Persian Gulf. It's, uh, the, bottom, it's the bottom right corner of the Arabian Peninsula. It's not Yemen. I'm so glad you're not in Yemen. Oh, I wish I was in Yemen. I've, <laughs> I've, been, I've been dying to go to Yemen. How many countries have you visited in all? You know, it depends on how you count. There are the United Nations countries, and then there are a whole bunch of other countries. And so depending on how you count, somewhere between 120 and 150. Somewhere between 120 and 150. And so you must be just about finished visiting all the countries of the world. No, no, I have uh, almost 100 to go. Uh, when you travel, I know you have some rules that you follow. Let, let's uh, review those. First of all, you stay only at high-end resorts. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, if it doesn't have a beach, I'm not going. <laughs> no. <laughs> I do. I. 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 I've been getting a little bit, um, a little bit lord luxurious in my old age. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, sleeping on mats in Indian truck stops as often. So this, uh, my hotel tonight is $43. That's something I wouldn't have allowed myself a decade ago. And another one of your rules is that your wife always travels with you because you are inseparable. <laughs> we, we, uh, we do love traveling together as long as it's someplace that Lori would like to go. And, um, and she does not like uh, a lot of the, she does not want to go to the lot, a lot of the places that I want to go to. So we, we go together everywhere that she'd like to go. Um, and then uh, there's those places that she's not interested in. Oman, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, this particular trip, Oman, she was uninterested in all of them. Uninterested is a very nice way of putting it. So uh, how do you, and when you get to uh, Oman or Qatar, how do you start conversations with people? You know, for, for a long time, my, my secret weapon was my camera. Even when the iPhone was taking pictures that were just as good as the as my kind of Costco um, Nikon. I, I having the big camera just catches people's attention. They know you're a tourist, and so they know they don't. They're never going to have to talk to you again. Um, and uh, and so and that frees people up a little bit. And um, I could ask them if I could take a picture. If I could, I'd take a picture. I'd show them the picture of themselves on my readout. We'd have a little conversation about it. Retake it, which it became a. It was a really great tool, especially when there was no language. Um, so my Arabic is. I have five phrases in Arabic um, total, so that doesn't get us very far. And when I when I had no language, the camera was a great great tool. Now uh, it's more, just as common for people to ask to take my picture as it is for me to ask to take their picture because everybody has a smartphone. 
um, all over the world. Not everybody, obviously, but so many people do. And so the the the, the cameras now are are not quite as good a tool, but they still work. They still allow us to talk about something that's happening right in front of us. And so we can gesture and point and everything makes makes a bit of sense. Proper nouns, of course, are, are the great communication tool. Proper nouns. Proper nouns. You can say Trump anywhere. Ah, I want to I want to get back to that in just a minute. This volume, The Kindness of Strangers, when it opens in March 2020, you are in Manila en route to Papua New Guinea when a note was slipped under the door of your hotel room. Yeah, I was just um, trying to get it in under the wire. I, we kind of knew that something very bad was starting to happen everywhere around the world. But I had this trip on the books for a long time. And I just thought, Papua New Guinea, there's not a single case of, of any COVID in Papua New Guinea. So how, why should I worry about going there? And uh, very, very few cases in the Philippines. The Philippines started shutting down um, very quickly. Um, it's one of, the, one of the times when an authoritarian government is very handy if you want to ensure public health measures. So um, Duterte, you know, for everything that he does horribly, horribly, murderously wrong, he did um, jump on the COVID and, and, and shut, shut things down. So I got a note saying the hotel is closing on Wednesday. I think this was and what day Sunday. was this? On a Sunday. And then, uh, you know, the next day, uh, next morning, I got a note that said we're closing down tomorrow. Four hours later, I got a note saying we're closing down in three hours. Um, and so everybody had to leave the hotel. And of course, Duterte had shut down the taxis that morning. So everybody had to get to the airport <laughs> and leave. And there were, no, there were no taxis to get people to the airport. It was a, it was a bit of a... a, a a, a nightmare. I also kind of, as I was sitting in the hotel room right after that note came, for the first time, it occurred to me, not that I had to worry about myself, but that I was a potential vector and that I could have been patient zero in Papua New Guinea. And so I'd already canceled my flight to New Guinea um, and then turned around and came home anyway. Well, we're very glad you got home. So all of this book is about before COVID. Madagascar. You met a fascinating guy in Madagascar. Madagascar is a big island in the Indian Ocean off the east coast of Africa. Uh, this guy had been in the French Foreign Legion. Why? And and how did that work out for him? He he was um, he was a really interesting um, kid. I mean, I um, I think everybody under forty is a, is a kid to me somehow <laughs> now nowadays. Okay. But um, he was a young a young man who uh, really uh, smart and interesting and uh, talented in a lot of different ways. He's a heavy metal bass player, among other things. Wow. Um, so we, we, he played a lot of his music for me and we talked, we talked music a lot. He, um, he joined the French Foreign Legion for the same reason that a lot of um, immigrant kids and poor kids in America join the army. It, it's, it's a ladder out of socioeconomic position that's not good. So it was, it was a way for him to kind of move up a, a kind of economic and social ladder. And uh, he was not happy with the experience, but he, but he was he was happy to have the opportunity. And where did the French Foreign Legion send him? Well, they sent him first to Castle Maudry, which is uh, in the in the southern Dordogne or maybe the, the 
Eastern Provence. It's in the, you know, it's kind of South Central France. Uh, so he did his basic training there. Uh, he did a short bit in Chad. I think he was in Djibouti. Um, uh, the French have a huge base in Djibouti. And then um, came home. He also, he also spent time on the uh, Na- Madagascar national rugby team. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Just a, a, a great guy. You flew to an island in the middle of the Pacific, part of the Marshall Islands, an island called Kwajalein. You called it the oddest island in the Pacific, and they wouldn't let you get off the plane there. This is United Flight 155, although other people did get off. They didn't let you get off, even though it's a U.S. territory. Why didn't they let you off the plane? It is a U.S. military base. It is, a, it is 100% U.S. military U.S. military contractors and uh, a few people who work there, uh, who used to live there and live on a neighboring island now, um, and were were kicked off the island by the U.S. military. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's the equivalent of Guantanamo um, in the Pacific. And and what does Kwajalein look like? Why is it the oddest island? It's it's um, completely paved over. Uh, there are a bunch of gray buildings. Many of them look like they have radar, you know, they're round on the top, radar installations of various kinds. And there's nothing but that kind of military base. Uh, you know, in Los Angeles, there's something a little reminiscent of a movie studio about it. There's these big buildings, all very drab. And then along one side, there's a golf course. It's the only green on the island. And this, the, 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 the Marshall Islands has the, the smallest amount of arable land per human inhabitant of almost anywhere on Earth. Well, I thought you said that the, the bigger island of the Marshalls, that the road is what? There's a road that's like 10 miles long or something? That's kind of a long island. Yes, it's very long, but it's very thin. It, a lot of a lot of along the along that road, um, most of the time there's nothing on the side except for the kind of breakwater rocks. It's just uh, the island is as wide as the road. It's an old kind of volcano rim with a lagoon in the middle. Right? And so that, that, um, that, that road kind of follows around and it connects what met, might in another year or two become separate islands because obviously the water is rising um, and it's only a, f- a foot or two off the ground. And the runway at the Kwajalein uh, Airport, how far is the runway above sea level? It's it's one foot. One foot. One foot above sea level. <laughs> when, I, when I was there, you know, I was watching the I was watching the screen on the plane that tells you what, what your altitude is. And usually, you know, you come down and you come down and it hits two hundred or so when you land. Uh, it, it, this was this was uh, came down to one. Wow. Kwajalein is near the famous island of Bikini. Why didn't you visit Bikini? The, the bikini of the island itself is 400 miles away. Uh, it's also was the place where the U.S. did its nuclear bomb testing. So it's it's been destroyed. It's actually starting to come back. There's some some a, a few people starting to repopulate it, but most of the bikini islanders, of course, were a lot of them have died of radiation poisoning because they were too close to the blasts. Um, a, a lot um, have uh, are ill. Um, and uh, the rest of them are, are almost almost entirely um, re- re- repatriated to other islands or other places altogether. Yeah, this story is told in the wonderful documentary Atomic Cafe, which shows a news documentary from the period about removing the Bikini Islanders 
before the blast. Now, the nuclear testing the United States did on Bikini in the 50s, these were bombs uh, bigger than the Hiroshima bomb, I think. Hundreds of times bigger, and, and they dropped hundreds of bombs that were hundreds of times bigger. So... And then you visited Managua, Nicaragua, uh, well known to all of us 40 years ago when we all supported the Sandinistas when they overthrew the dictatorship of Somoza, Sandinistas led by Daniel Ortega. But that was 40 years ago, and the Sandinistas not in power have changed. One sign of that was actually a, a neon sign that you saw, the biggest sign in downtown Managua. What was that sign? The Seminole Casino. This is Seminole, the the Native Americans of Florida. Yes. How did they get to Managua, Nicaragua? They won the contract to open a casino in Managua, um, which was part of the which part of the a government program to you know bring business to the uh, to the country. Um, it's it was it's since been sold a couple of times and um, and uh, it's no longer owned by the Seminole tribe. And and you found some some symbolism in the fact that there was an Indian casino in the capital of Nicaragua. One of the things I've noticed is that there are, there are very different relations between the uh, uh, indigenous peoples of country A and indigenous peoples of country country B, and especially in in um, Central America, that difference is very striking. And in some places where you just don't see a lot of evidence of indigenous culture it's it's kind of noticeably lacking because you i was i was doing a lot of driving around from country to country and you just kind of move from one country where where it was part of a of a vibrant mix you know sometimes very fraught mix of of peoples uh to to place like nicaragua where it's not especially in the cities so to see this the seminole uh, sign on the side of that building in a nation that in, in, a, in a city, uh, Managua, with uh, very little in the way of indigenous, indigenous culture um, was striking in and, of, in and of itself. And the kind of you, you, you remember the Sandinistas, Sandinistas, we love the Sandinistas. Yes, we do. Uh, the Sandinistas are now the upper class. Uh, and, and of course, a lot of them were from the upper class. Um, to, to start with, but they're but they're they are the, they are the governmental class and they are part of a system of oppression in that country that are that is quite horrifying to this day and uh so to see that that kind of historical oppression highlighted in neon on the side of the building in the center of uh, governmental oppression was, was striking so this book covers a period while trump was still uh president and you said the 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 name trump could often uh, be a, open a door to a conversation you report that in Bangladesh, you ran into one guy, maybe the only guy in, in, in this whole book, who said, I love Trump. What was his story? Well, I was very interested to find out because he was he was with a group of young young men. We were we were, you know, just chatting. Um, I was taking everybody's picture. Everybody was taking my picture. And and when he said that, I, I looked at him. And he he gave me a look that I couldn't decipher. I couldn't figure out what exactly he was trying to signal to me. And so, uh, you know, we've kind of I wandered around and and, and uh, the crowd loosened up. And I finally got a chance to talk to him alone. And he said, uh, "I don't know. I don't know if I really like Trump. I just don't like to get on the bandwagon <laughs> with everyone. You know, everybody hates Trump, and so I'm 
that's just me. That's just who I am. I, I don't like to immediately go with the crowd. So, <laughs> and I just an iconoclast. And then you asked them, well, if he loved Trump, what did he think about Obama? <laughs> and he said, Obama is a god. <laughs> so, you know, obviously he was not a Trump supporter. I, I also ran into a guy in, I don't know if, is that, if this is in this book or not, but I ran into a guy in Hong Kong and he was wearing a Make America Great Again cap. And I, and I did a, a kind of quick double take and he immediately put his hands up and he said, it's ironic. <laughs> <laughs> So big picture here, the title of the book is The Kindness of Strangers. Of course, your friends and family worry you will be robbed and beaten or, you know, kidnapped and held for ransom. Apparently, you have not been kidnapped and held for ransom. Not yet. Not yet. Nope. And, uh, and you know, there, there are a number of times where I thought I was getting kidnapped. There was there were some there were some dicey moments here and there. But I just always think I've been thinking this for years and years. I mean, this this title and the kind of the emphasis in various of these chapters is about this idea that that people are so kind to me everywhere I go. And and it's not just because in hotels people want to you know, tip and be, you know, and and guides want to tip. And you know, there, there are, people have financial reasons to be nice to me sometimes. So there's that. But I just walking down the street, people are very, very kind over and over and over again. And if let me let me interrupt here because you were overcharged for a fish dinner in Djibouti. <laughs> yes, I was. Uh, that guy was hilarious. Uh, he he was so unperturbed. I, I, he didn't just overcharge me. He overcharged everybody. <laughs> I was sitting there eating my fish, and I heard a guy screaming at him. They got in this big fight, and I started thinking, "Oh, well, this is interesting." I was it was my maybe my first day in Djibouti. I was said, "This is interesting. This is a country where people scream at each other a lot." I guess <laughs> I've, I've been here for an hour, and here we got a guy screaming, and then another. It, it this argument ended with the guy going off in a huff. Ten minutes later, another guy. And by the way, there were three diners. Me and these two guys <laughs> I'm talking about. So the, the one guy left in a huff. The second guy screamed at him and left in a huff. And then when I got my bill, I realized why they were screaming. It wasn't your booty. It was this guy, and he was just charging, you know, fifty dollars for a for a for a fifty cent fish. And so it was it was a. Uh, yeah, you, you you get ripped off, but that's not that's that's also very rare. People people are much more likely to kind of give you say you 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 I, I didn't give you enough change. They're much more likely to to refuse to take a tip. Um, they're they're much more likely to ask you to come into their house and have dinner. Come come to their come to their kid's wedding. <laughs> they're they're just it's uh it's remarkable. And I often thought you know if I was as poor as a lot of the people I was hanging out with, and I, somebody like me walked into the room, I would bonk me over the head and take my camera and my computer and 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 get, have a year's worth of income from it. I mean, it's just it's it's remarkable the the wealth that I walk around with in my little ratty backpack compared to the annual incomes and and gross wealth of the people that I'm talking to. But that doesn't that doesn't make it impossible for us to have these incredible moments of uh, interesting communion out of out of nothing. So uh, I just wanted to kind of say that with this book and write it up a little bit. The kindness of strangers. 
is Tom Lutz's new book. He's speaking to us today from somewhere in Oman on the Saudi Peninsula. Tom, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thank you so much for having me. it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.